Hello, my name is Israel. I've been involved in hip hop since the 1980s as an artist, producer, radio show host, journalist, documentarian, magazine editor, hip hop advocate, and pundit. Over the years, I've interviewed hundreds of interesting people in music, media, and more. Welcome to Sounds from the Underground, the podcast from Insomniac Magazine, where we learn from both those who reside below the surface and those who've breached it. On this episode of the podcast, we have an industry professional who's played a prominent role in the careers of some of hip-hop's most significant artists. He's helped launch acts such as Criss Cross, Cypress Hill, Wyclef, Praz, and of course, the amazing Lauren Hill. As co-founder of Rough House Records, one of hip-hop's most influential labels, his company released music from artists such as Cool Keith, Beanie Siegel, DMX, John Forte, The Goats, Tim Dog, Nas, and countless others. This includes releasing globally acclaimed albums such as The Score by the Fugees and The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. In all, his company is responsible for the sale of over 120 million records globally. His roots in the genre stem back to the 1980s when he managed hip-hop phenom Schooly D. He's the author of the new must-read book for any hip-hop aficionado or really anyone interested in the music industry. Rough House, from the streets of Philly to the top of the 90s hip-hop charts. Sit back and get ready to take a deep dive into hip-hop history on this discussion with music industry trailblazer and executive Chris Schwartz. So I, uh, I read your book, and uh, I have to say that it was intriguing to learn about your background and and I was curious there's so much adversity that you had to overcome and so much of it was at the hands literally of family members did you find it difficult to write about that yeah I did it's like you know when it rains it pours Mm -hmm. right well, well, for the, what what was really hard? How how do you make people understand it unless you really just like talk about it, right? Right. And and really, you know, give it some detail so they they understand it. But then it was like, you know, the like what was in the book was only the tip of the iceberg. I mean, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, it's crazy. Is it my publishers? Mm-hmm. You know, I look. I've never written a book before, right? Right. Right. And so when. Uh, there was a woman that, that used to, to work for me. She was my controller for Rough Nation and Rough House. Mm-hmm. And she was um, calling my wife saying, you know, Chris, really, he needs to write a book because, you know, they want to do this documentary and all this stuff. Mm. And and people have been saying for years, man, you should write a book, write a book. But it's like it was never going to be the book that people thought I should be writing, right? Right. Because um, originally this book wasn't – to supposed to be so much about the record label and everything, mm. you know, is almost like it's kind of a, um, as a, as a, as a way to get closure mm-hmm. on like, just like a horrific childhood. Right. Mm-hmm. I just decided to write this book. And when I sent the, the first, I guess the first draft manuscript in, you know, and, and I, I tried to be careful because I, I remember reading when you're writing a memoir, mm-hmm. right, 
you don't want to torture the reader. Mm-hmm. You don't want to like, you don't want to just keep going on and on about this like thing, you know, uh, for the reader. So I kind of like, I held so much stuff back, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, and I had to really be, um, I had to be uh, judicious mm-hmm. in, in deciding what to t- how to talk about it, mm-hmm. you know, like how to talk about it, how to say this is what happened and everything like that. Yeah, it was it was hard. But once it started going, mm-hmm. but, you know, I could tell you this, I um, I definitely had like periods where like I'm typing and I, I could feel like, you know, I'm like hitting, you know, the 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 keyboard and like, you know, you know, just, uh, just feeling like anger, like mm-hmm. overcome me, you know, uh, because, because the, the simple truth is there was never any reconciliation. Obviously with all the adversity that you had to overcome, do you feel that there was something about the, the culture of hip hop and the synergy between all the difficulty that uh, comes along with being in the inner city and 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 the folks and the kids that actually created that resonated with you or was it just the music? No, well, no. Here's the thing. Let's. It started with the music. Absolutely started with the music. And I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. Because I was a de- devotee to electronic music. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I was really into the whole rhythmic. Uh, you know what you could do with electronic music and programmed uh, drums and and everything like all that stuff that that Kraftwerk did and Al mm-hmm. Schulze and Tangerine Dream and all these groups. It was that they would get into these really like you know see it's funny because what they call krautrock mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. back in the back in the sixties and the seventies. Because before the before all these German cats got into this electronic equipment, mm-hmm. that's what their band sounded like when they played live. It was like that's like that was the kind of rhythms. It was very regimented, but it had these like very quick tempos, right? So when they when they all started embracing like electronics because there was this whole german art movement right mm-hmm. and uh like you know the filmmakers like Werner Herzog and the actor Klaus Kinski and everything groups like Ashra Temple and Popol Vuh right so this whole electronic thing happened so all these groups all traded away their their acoustic and their electric and their electric guitars in, instrumentation for keyboards and synthesizers and everything and mm-hmm. they created they use actual uh clocks to create mm-hmm. computer generated rhythms and everything mm-hmm. so that was that was what started it right right so so if you look at the pedigree uh the 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 evolution right going mm-hmm. from going from craft work right um Trans Europe Express, mm-hmm. which which African Bombada and Soul Sonic Force and you know Arthur Baker mm-hmm. and everything, and what really became like breakdance anthems and like numbers by Kraftwerk and everything, mm-hmm. right? So that thing happened, and that that really started more like the whole breakdance movement, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. rap was something it was part of something else, right? Mm-hmm. And it, but that's where it was for me, you know, right? So. So it was very easy being into electronic music and like we were like the first guys in Philly's to Philly to own a uh, Roland TR-808. <laughs> now, we had one when it was still a prototype. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so that 
that was that was the was the thing, you know, that like I was already, you know, you know how like the 808, all the instrumentation on it, how iconic it is. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, The cowbell, the woodblock, the kick drum, the snare, the hand claps and everything. Right. It's, It's really iconic. But that's what that was my foundation, like what my 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 formative music experience was that drum machine Mm -hmm. before it was used in hip hop. So so that's what that's what I'm into. Right. Mm -hmm. So now you got these kids Mm -hmm. who are primarily what I consider to be like poets. Mm -hmm. okay, who have these stories and they're stories that are basically uh, self-proclamation about their their experience and their culture and their lives, right? Mm-hmm. And they're they're doing it over beats. So it was very very easy transition for me. Right. Plus, I I loved R and B too. Mm-hmm. You know, I I took to it like a fish to water. Actually, very nice. Yeah, and I, I read that uh, when you started your band that you had uh, purchased. Uh, that 808. Did you get rid of it or? Now we still have it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I've had a couple of them. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, as a matter of fact, yeah, we had two of them. Uh-huh. And I actually lent one to this kid and uh-huh. never got it back. You wow. know, and, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, we still have it. Uh, you know, it's but the thing is now you you can get 808 sounds on anything. Sure. Of course. Yeah. And that's, you know, the one thing, the reason the 808 failed uh-huh. uh Commercially, the reason it failed is because you can only program two drum programs at a time, mm-hmm. right? You have your A and your B, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's really it's a lot of work, right? But if you if you use it for its intended purpose, mm-hmm. okay, its intended purpose was to basically replace a drum set in either a live performance or recording situation, right? right? Well, if you're using it for live performance, good luck because you can only use two beats. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to program all the sections, you know. Right. So it's a lot, you know, to program, to do an entire, like, song. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about a hip-hop track. I'm talking about if you're doing, like, a like a pop song or right. a country song or a rock song, mm-hmm. using the 808 for its intended purpose, it was really um, a time-consuming thing right so so now the yeah the actual 808 box itself you know there it's kind of cool and fun to look at and play mm-hmm, with but mm-hmm. it doesn't really it doesn't really not with what's going on what you can get now right right plugins and everything right that that being said this they're going for a heck of a lot more than they were when they came out right yeah yeah <laughs> well and here's the thing if i if i was making a record uh-huh. right like if i was making a record I would actually use a real 808. Uh, I could do it. If I'm just screwing around and you're like doing demos or whatever, uh, right. I would just use the plugins. But right. yeah, but because in the reason being is that there's just no way that you're going to replicate. I don't care how good it is. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. There's no digital plugin or replication that is going to is going to replace, you know, the actual woodblock. Right. Right. Or the hand clap mm-hmm. or the kick drop. You know, there's just nothing's going to nothing's going to sound like that. You can enhance it, you know. But now would I pass an A-B check? I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I, I, I'm not in the studio as much right. as I used to. 
Right. I used to be able to do it, but I yeah. don't know if I can do it today. If somebody said, okay, tell me what, to, which tell me one? which is the plugin, which is the real, uh-huh. I'd have to like really give it some, you know. Right. Speak, speaking of the 808, what was it the nine? What was it that Schooly used on PSK? Was it the 909? Uh, 909. Right. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. I, I was, um, and I don't want to give away too much of the book because I want folks obviously to go out there and pick it up, but I was, intrigued by the the story you told uh about you having to sneak out a window at a venue after yeah. a, a short uh schoolie d set or at least for rock um standards talk to me a little bit about how you first uh got acquainted with uh schoolie i i knew who he was for a long time because uh i knew about you know, this, this song gangster boogie mm-hmm. right gangster mm-hmm. boogie uh they played gangster boogie on um Power 99, mm. you know, they play in the mix show, like Cosmic Kevin, those guys. And uh, I knew he had done a lot of shows, right, because he's from West Philly. And uh, But I had never met him. And I worked for, for this, uh, ch- this really cheesy independent label in West Philly called Nice Town Records. Mm-hmm. And um, Schooly had actually just had a meeting with the head of the, the guy who owned the label. Mm. And the guy sent Schooly on his way. We did a Bill Cosby live at Gradefer Prison record. Mm-hmm. It was just a really sucky, you know, it was like Bill, it's Bill Cosby live at Gradefer Prison and mm-hmm. I think it was done in like the, probably like the early 70s or something because right. it was really kind of hokey and just mm-hmm. bad and, you know, and so this is what, this was the big release for this label. We, he, he had a bunch of, like we did a Bunny Sigler record that was cool, but this was the big release. And I just remember, you know, because Bill Cosby at the time had put out a from the Cosby show. He had done a jazz compilation record. Mm-hmm. I think it had been called Bill Cosby and Friends or something. And so there was so I used that the 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 uh, confusion in the marketplace to to work this record that I had. Right. Mm-hmm. But the label wasn't really going anywhere. And so. I uh, I had a uh, I was it was in a meeting with the label owner in his office, a guy named Ted, mm-hmm. and I saw these records sitting in the, against the wall, and I pick it up, and it's Gangster Boogie, and there's mm-hmm. like the little rocket ship on it and everything. Mm-hmm. I have that record, uh, and I was like, "Oh, Schoolie D." I said, "I said, so what's going with this?" He goes, "Oh, he goes, oh yeah, Schoolie came to see me." He goes, "But I, you know, I wasn't interested," and I was sitting there like, "What?" <laughs> and that but this is here's the thing this is so bizarre i had already decided literally an hour before this happened that i was quitting mm. and starting my own label wow so so there it was it was almost like you know uh you ever, you watch game of thrones yep mm-hmm. okay so you know um uh, you know obviously we know at the end mm-hmm. that at bran mm-hmm. okay already saw all this, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He didn't know what the end was, but he knew what had happened to come to the end, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he knew that people, you know, it was the only, one of the only TV shows I ever seen where uh, villains become heroes and heroes become villains, right? Right. But, but remember what he said to everybody, you are where you're supposed to be, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So I think I was where I was supposed to be. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think I think something happened. I you know, and I I was never one for um, cosmic revelation. You know what I mean? Right. But 
I think it, it it's when I when I look back in retrospect that because somebody was saying what was probably the most important record that you ever released, right? Mm-hmm. Or this or that, and they, they always think like say they are, are going to think the miseducation of Lauren Hill or something, right? right? Right. And I go, well, no, not really. You know, I really consider the School ED record mm-hmm. because at the time the record was so unique and it was like nothing there was nothing like it out there Mm -hmm. there was nothing like this record in any any respect at all i feel like somebody told me to try and be a musician right i was directed you know and i was where i was where i was supposed to be i was sitting in the second or third floor of this daycare center this Mm -hmm. this turn of the century building in west philly right with no heat Right. Mm-hmm. Wearing a jacket, wearing a park and scarf and gloves and a hat, making phone calls. Mm-hmm. And I'm in West Philly and this is West Philly in, you know, 19, or four or whatever, when it was this area was a not predominantly black, all black area. Mm-hmm. I was the only I knew I knew sitting in that building that I'm the only white person within two square miles. Right. Mm hmm. So something had been, so I was there for a reason and I decided I was going to quit. I went down and I was in sitting in the Ted's office and those records were there. Mm-hmm. And so Ted left. I went back and I got Schoolie's number off of his desk and I called him and ended up working with him. So mm-hmm. if I did not been in nice town records, I would never met him. Wow. You know what I mean? And, the, and then I then it's like okay well what if the what if, what if the, the distribution that I had put together never happened mm-hmm. world would have never have had like this record you know I don't know I know it sounds crazy but you know it's just something I I, I thought about that I, I just kind of think that sometimes like fate does take you to where you're supposed to be right. and I think it's supposed to be there. And that record, I mean, PSK and Gucci time, like you said, there's really nothing in the history of the genre that's ever really replicated that, I don't know, that sound and that moment. You know, it's funny. I was listening to, um, I was in a car the other day, and this car had a factory stereo in it, nothing Mm -hmm. special. Mm -hmm. And I was driving with somebody to New York. And this person is like a massive hip hop head, mm-hmm. but they didn't they didn't know Schooly. Mm-hmm. They knew they kind of knew who he was. And so, you know, it's always interesting when when somebody hears it for the first time, mm-hmm. right? When you play PSK for the first time, mm-hmm. right? And it's like they're listening to that gated that gated snare, and it's at that mm-hmm. point, <laughs> and it's just like it's so repetitive, right? Mm-hmm. And you know. It like it. It's like you, and, and what's 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 really unique about it is like how would somebody have even thought to do that? Now a lot of it was admittedly happenstance, right? You know, and it was happenstance through the fact that it was recorded in a little eight track studio that mm-hmm. was designed to record the Philadelphia Orchestra, right? right? And so there was no outboard gear, no anything, but there was this you know this vintage old huge plate reverb mm. right and um uh, so you're hearing like a gated plate reverb on the on the on the on the snare and and the and the kick drum and it's like and it's what made it 
and he, and he's also one of the first first people like it, using like the 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 symbols mm-hmm. almost like his musical instrumentation mm-hmm. not not just necessarily there's like being a, a musical component for helping establish the um the the um the rhythm mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. is that you know when you hear that tang tang on the on the symbols it's like it's um it's like it's just I haven't heard that anywhere. No, Mm-mm. I haven't. You know, and uh, and so yeah, it's it's incredibly, incredibly unique. I still remember those records. I mean, outside of obviously the music, but what I remember specifically about those records uh, was that unlike uh, and and because clearly it was super independent. Unlike a lot of the other records that I would buy, it ha- it felt as though. The vinyl was thicker, and also it had those very plain yellow labels, obviously with his, you know, with his line drawings. But was there something different about that vinyl uh, uh, and the plant that it came from? Yeah, yeah. I can, Well, on the original originals, yeah. absolutely. It was Soundmakers. Uh-huh. And if you, you know, it's funny, you could go back, if you look at, like Cookie Puss, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, all the sleeping bag stuff. Right. Um, Next Plateau, uh, some of the Tommy Boy stuff. Mm-hmm. If you look at some of those records between the years, uh, say, 82 to 80, I want to say like 88, 89, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just different because I, I do remember this, that when we went from uh, sound makers to Peter Pan records, mm-hmm. the, the vinyl definitely changed. Mm. And it seemed that uh, sound makers used this really thick industrial, like, <laughs> I, you know what I mean? Right, right. At the other record that I remember from that era that maybe it was a little bit later that reminded me vinyl wise was, and I think he was also from Philly, was the MC Breeze Discombobulator. Oh, yeah. MC Breeze, the singing MC. Yeah, yeah. Well, except no substitutes, uh-huh. you know. Uh, probably done at Soundmakers. Yeah, that's what I was thinking because they, they had a lot of. Uh, I don't know. They, they just seemed similar the the way the vinyl felt. I know this is super geeky, but I still remember the way the vinyl. Yeah, you know felt. what? There's nothing geeky about. It. I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> because music is one of the only commercial products made. Mm-hmm. Think about this. That impacts the daily lives of every person walking the face of God's very earth, whether they want to believe it or not. Right. True. true. So so the fact that people find the process of how it gets there and where it gets there and how why it gets there and everything like that. The fact that people find that uninteresting is like, well, I'll never get that. Right. I've always, I've always had a massive fascination. Yeah, you, know, you know, I had um, at one point I, 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 I bought this mansion, right? Mm. This, this really nice estate, and um, it backed up through a valley, mm-hmm. right? There was a big creek, and down in this valley, and then you go up the hill, and the the property on the other side of the creek was the estate of Eldridge Johnson. Eldridge Johnson. He was a electrician who had a little electrical shop down in Camden, mm-hmm. right, on the waterfront. And these guys came to him and said they had a Victrola. 
Mm-hmm. Now, early Victrolas, you know, you wind them up and they were very wobbly and music didn't quite sound that good and everything. Mm-hmm. And he figured it out to add like to do to put a whole component in there, like a, a servo thing with gears to make it s- spin smooth and keep the time and all that. Mm-hmm. And so he started the Victor Talking Machine Company, which became, you know, which in RCA bought them out mm-hmm. and everything. That, that's important to me. Wow. You know what I mean? These are important things. There's a guy, a, uh, a, I believe he is Polish, worked at uh, CBS, mm-hmm. the Columbia Broadcasting System group of companies, which was CBS Records and uh, CBS Radio, CBS Television, right, mm-hmm. at BlackRock, right, in, mm-hmm. in New York. This guy, had he's a, it's the same guy who came up with color television, had this idea for instead of 78s and 45s mm-hmm. to do a 33 and a third long play record, mm-hmm. right? So William Paley, who's from Philadelphia, right? Family is mm-hmm. cigar business. He said, you know, let's see if RCA – will partner if, on this format if they will also do records in this format to make it worth our time. You know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. It makes sense, right? So they had a meeting in the CBS boardroom, and Robert Sarnoff came over, and they demonstrated the 33 and a third RPM record. Robert Sarnoff, the head of RCA, mm-hmm. chomping on a cigar, stood there with like his thumbs tucked in his vest pockets, you know, mm-hmm. said – Never work, never catch on, <laughs> and walked out. Things like that happen. See, mm-hmm. things, see, you know, like when we talked about happenstance in the production of the Schoolie record, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Just happenstance. Uh, William Paley, he started this, the Columbia Broadcast System Company, right? Uh-huh. As part of it, you know, he ended up buying Columbia Records. Right. The two names had nothing to do with each other, wow. right? But he was about to go out of business. And he was saved by Warner Brothers when Warner Brothers gave them the contract advertised Vitaphone. Wow. The um, you know, the, the record for the movies, uh-huh, for the uh-huh. sound for you know, for soundies, right? Right, right. So that because Warner's well, it was the jazz singer. So they needed to promote that movie and they wanted to promote the Vitaphone, the you know, the new record mm-hmm. uh, process of how so they could do sound and move talkies, right? Mm-hmm. And they hired CBS radio. Right. He was about to go out of business and that check from Warner brothers saved him. So think about that though, from a historical perspective, mm-hmm. how that, you know, and there's a lot of things like, you know, we wouldn't have an MCA, right? Music right. Corporation right. of America that was formed as a uh, booking agency and recording company for big bands because there was going to be a strike and they weren't going to be able to record. So they put this thing together to record as many records as they could in like two months. But anyhow, back to schooling. No, that's definitely fascinating. And and here we are all these years later, and and that format, vinyl, antiquated format, still resonates with people in 20, almost 2020. It it does. It's being romanticized. Mm -hmm. You had a vinyl record. Yeah. With the occasional... You know, Rolling Stone or whatever magazine. That that's how you saw the artist. That uh-huh. was it. That was the record, uh-huh. right? And except for the occasional TV appearance. So this is what this is how you're always thinking about this artist is this record. Mm-hmm. And then once every two years or once a year, when the artist would come around on a tour, it was like this mystical event. 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was like this big thing. Like you're actually now seeing this person, right? Right. Everything's so transient now. You have so much imagery of everything. Mm-hmm. And you have – because of the internet, there's so much going on. And I could see like – like yes, I could see how people who never weren't, – weren't, they were not here for the age of vinyl, how they could say, wow, I would really like to have been around for vinyl. Right. My daughter, my, my daughter who, was, uh, who graduates high school tomorrow bought a turntable. Because, <laughs> you know? yeah, I mean – and it's not that records sound better on vinyl. Right. Right? Let's dispel this. Okay. Uh huh. Records that were recorded for vinyl uh-huh. sound better on vinyl. Right. It's because they were recorded with analog. Mm-hmm. And if they were mixed in analog, they are mastered in analog because they were being reproduced in analog, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's why that's why you have that warmth and richness. But then when every every time I saw oh remastered for CD, mm-hmm. it's like no suck the, suck the life out of it for CD. The trick with digital is that you have to go to digital hot. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. you, you can't do anything to it af- after the fact. Now, anything you do after the fact is going to sound processed. Mm-hmm. So when you record digital or you know, or in the box, you have to go. You, the signal has to be really, really hot and big you know, mm-hmm. because that's it. That's your, that's your only shot. You can't go back and fatten it up later on. It's all, it's all fake. you know, mm-hmm. Simulated. But yeah, that's the beauty of vinyl. Yeah, there's something to be said about that tactile experience, actually holding something and also owning something. Yeah, yeah, because you own it. Absolutely. That's right. that's right. Let's talk a little bit about your move to management and, and working with Schooly. What would you say was your biggest lesson from that era, from managing uh, not just any artist, but this iconic artist? What would I tell like a new manager? Mm-hmm. What would I tell a new manager back then? I would say first things first, make sure that you're contracted with your artist. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you ready for this? Schooly and I never had a contract. Interesting. No, just it's it's it never there never seemed to be a reason to do one. Right. You know what I mean? It just, you know, uh, I, I, I I never got paid a percentage of Schooly. Mm-hmm. I got. I was paid a salary because the thing is, I didn't really come to him as a manager. I came to him as a as his label, right? To be the guy running his label. Right. I went to start, you know, do a record label, right? Uh-huh. But by proxy, I ended. I became his manager. If I was um, starting out, so I was mm-hmm. a young person starting out, mm-hmm. wanting to get into the management business, I would make sure I'd have my artist contracted mm. because you put in. A lot of sweat equity, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, any time that anybody, any any human endeavor, and you're involved in a in a personal services agreement with somebody, mm-hmm. it's a it's not a nine to five job. Right. It's a twenty four seven thing, and you're dealing you're dealing with a lot, especially if it's a talented artist too. Mm-hmm. You know, because it seems that the more talented they are on the one side, mm-hmm. the more they're missing on the other side. You mm-hmm. know, make mm-hmm. sure. You're contracted. When we signed the uh, schoolie to Jive, mm-hmm. one of the employees of Jive, and uh, you know, I'm I'm friends with Barry, so I'm not gonna you know mm-hmm. talk on anybody. But there was a person at Jive whose first order of business was to try and get schoolie to be managed by Russell. Wow. Now, here's the thing: we already passed 
earlier on on a record deal mm-hmm. with, uh, with Def Jam, with Rick, actually. Mm. We went to New York, and I thought this. I think we had a meeting in a dorm room at NYU or somewhere, <laughs> but it was with Rick, and we had we were we were already selling at that point like over three hundred thousand PSK the Yellow Records independently. Wow! So so when we go into the meeting, Rick is like, "Well, um, I will give you twelve thousand dollars for a song," and I'll never forget what he said. Just think, that's twelve thousand dollars for one song. <laughs> And it was like, huh? <laughs> Why? Why would we do that? You know what I mean? Right, right. We could sell. You know, we would. We could sell. Um, we only need to sell. You know, whatever. You know, like the five thousand singles to, to mm-hmm. you know to make twelve thousand dollars. It's not that hard to do. Right, right. Know? And I would imagine with those types of numbers from us from a truly independent perspective i mean schoolie must have had a lot of leverage when negotiating with uh jive yeah it was actually like one of the biggest at the time it was one of the biggest deals they ever did interesting yeah it was actually it was hundred and twenty thousand dollars now right. think about this right this is in what 1987 88 mm-hmm. or whatever a hundred and twenty thousand dollars for a hip-hop artist right was a massive amount of money as a matter wow. of me, and, and here's the thing and you know, you know, it, it was it was because they talked about it all the time. Right, right. At any time that we needed to want to do something, it's like, well, we gave them so much money, but you know, that's what's what it was. And right. and, and the thing is, when you had uh, when you had uh, all these other companies like Warner's and you know Capital, and, you know, they all they Atlantic, they all wanted to sign Schooling Electra. So you had a little. There was there like a little bidding war at the time. Yeah, mm. yeah, but you know what? Here's the thing: like the Capital. Uh, we see we were trying to get a label deal, mm-hmm. and um, you know it was as, it was going to be really hard to get one because we didn't have really have we we had Robbie B and DJ Jazz mm-hmm. right who had this really awesome track I don't know if you know it's called Rock to Go Go I don't know if I know that one all right uh, homework assignment yeah uh, no check out Rock to Go Go will do okay it's uh, it's a Robbie B and DJ Jazz mm-hmm. Philly, and it is true classic Philly hip hop. Nice, right? Uh, and but what's cool about it is that the the the, the rap doesn't come in for a long time. Mm. It's and it's like it's just like this beat that just goes on and like you know, and then the rap comes in much later on in the track. Great. Great song. We also uh, we also did a record. Um, Will Run, Pimp Pretty, uh, Op Stay Now. Right. What a great track. What a great track. So those are all the guys. You know when you when you listen to the PSK record, right? right you hear right. the guys all standing around the mic and everything. Uh-huh. That's all. That's all those guys. That's his crew. Uh, it's it's fascinating just to to think now. You know, in hindsight, how entrepreneurial he had to be to you know want to run a record label at at, in a time when really hip-hop artists weren't necessarily you know they weren't the moguls yet you know well well yeah because we yeah they were they were uh rebels and street poets but they had yet to become kingpins and moguls you know right but you did have some people 
you know, like Luke Skywalker. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, Master P. Right. And those guys, they, you know, they figured it out early on, right. you know, uh, that you could you could do this on your own. And here's the thing, man. I'll tell you this, you know, Jesse Schooley, right? Mm-hmm. He, uh, he could have, he could have gone all the way with this. Mm. You know, we could have done, we could have had a platinum PSK album. Right. It could have easily have happened. Mm-hmm. He just would not put the money back in, mm. you know? And as I said, uh, I was on, a, I did uh, the Questlove uh, podcast a while back. Mm-hmm. And when I was saying to that, it's that like, if I need like $642, right? Mm-hmm. I'd say, yo man, I need $642. Say, yo man, I'll slide by, I'll give you a check, right? Mm-hmm. And come by and I get the check. It'd be under the bottom of my desk. And I'd be, it'd be $242, <laughs> you know? It's like, it just, you know, it was never enough. Right. We never, ever meet the demand. Right, right. You know? Now, there is something to be said about that on some level. Sure. Because, you know, you're 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 keeping this, you know, you got this product, you know, that you're that people always want and everything. But it's just that from a from from building a company, uh-huh. you know, because I can never get them to understand that, right. you know. You got. You need to. You need to know this. You know, mm-hmm. selling, selling. Just think, a million records with like the lowest overhead in the world for making four to five, six, seven dollars a record, mm-hmm. right? You know, and we could have done the other artists. You know, right? And because that that was the whole thing. To see the distributors back then when there was vinyl had this thing mm-hmm. that if you looked at it. The distributors were the independent distributors are these guys who, for the most part, made the lowest amount of money in the whole deal. Mm. Made less than the store, they made less than the label, they made less than the pressing plant and the artist. Mm-hmm. They make least amount of money, right? right? Right. So they the reason that they were like really pricks about paying people. Mm-hmm. Because if you're a new label and you come and you have a hit record, right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're not going to just pay you mm-hmm. because what they don't want to do is to pay you mm-hmm. that they get hit with returns. That's right. And they call you and your phone's disconnected. Mm-hmm. And so they take a very cynical view of freshly minted labels, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. they are. So you have to have a product flow. And that was another problem. We only had school ED. Right. We didn't have, you know, we didn't, we didn't really work really seriously you know, doing any other artists. So even on his stuff, it was hard to get paid. Indeed. They always want something in the pipeline. Yeah. Right. They'll pay you on the first record. Right. And you're delivering your third record. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And obviously they're all going to have different terms and clearly you're going to have a reserve and all kinds of oh, yeah. guarantees it's that they're going to be able to stay afloat if you disappear. Nobody wants to get hit with returns or get burned. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We made it work. Right. I, I, got a, I got a children's record company to do us, you know. <laughs> that was uh, – well, here's the thing. I'll, I'll tell you what happened. After the whole thing happened with uh, Soundmakers and uh-huh. Warlock Records, right, uh-huh. uh, I went to – there was a, a place called Dismakers in Philadelphia. Oh, sure. I went and met with one of the sales reps, mm-hmm. and we were going to have Schoolie's record pressed up there. And uh, that night – Around seven o'clock, mm-hmm. I get a phone call from the owner of Dismakers, mm-hmm. and he said, "I can't take this account." Mm. I said, "Why not?" 
He goes, well, because Vince and I are really good friends and we talk every night, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And it was like, okay. So now it's like the other pressing plant won't take our record. Mm. So that's when I uh, just started looking through um, – I forget how I found Peter Pan records. Mm-hmm. I think there was a Peter Pan record down in the studio. They were using a Peter Pan record for, for something, for like a sound effect or something on somebody's mm-hmm. records. Right. And so I saw this Peter Pan records, right? Mm-hmm. And it said manufactured by Peter Pan records, mm. right, in uh, Newark, New Jersey. Mm. And I was like, well, wait, this is a children's record label that has their own pressing plant, right? Wow. And I called him up and I made an appointment. I took all my shit with me, you know, all the things like open orders from pressing plants. Mm-hmm. And I sat with these guys that we had Chinese food. I'll never forget this, right? <laughs> these old, like, you know, you know, North Jersey Jewish, you know, record guys in the, you know, and, uh, they they agreed to do it. They agreed to press up Schoolie's record. Wow. So, yeah, and it was the only outside client they ever took. And it just happened to be uh, a gangster, well, one of the first and not the first gangster hip-hop record. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I was, uh, I'm was i doing a, a, a reading at the Strand bookstore uh-huh. in New York City uh-huh. on uh, the 24th. And uh, I went there to check the space out. Just see, I always wanted to see. I've never been to it, right? Right. And there's a book on the BC Boys. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, I have that. Talking about right? Uh-huh. Okay. Well, there's a chapter in there. I thought this was interesting. It said uh, the guy who's right, whoever's say writing the book. He said you could. He said you know there may be like a stray record out there, like Philadelphia School ED, <laughs> which came out before. But then he goes, but then la, 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 la. And the BCs really put out the first gangster hip hop. <laughs> and I'm like, like, all right. So here's a record <laughs> that came out before the BCs. Uh-huh. But for some reason, it's a stray that doesn't right. count. Yeah. That's funny. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that 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 is funny. <laughs> so I, I love to learn a little bit about your take on working with artists. So obviously, and you kind of alluded to this. So obviously artists are quirky beings. Everybody knows that. And and as you mentioned, sometimes the most talented artists are also the sometimes the quirkiest. And in between there, you also have folks that might be difficult to work with. And I'm curious how you've decided in your career to overlook maybe some of those quirks or maybe even difficult personalities this, to, despite the huge talent it was there ever a time that you kind of walked away uh, because you know what, no you know what i i you know it's funny i i never had no school like J- jesse schooly yeah yeah you know, him, mr him weaver I, you know it's funny he actually <laughs> after i started rough house and everything uh-huh. like years later he's doing his thing he's doing the film stuff yeah in hunger force uh-huh. his wife and my wife became friends mm-hmm. had nothing to do with us right right met each other at a party and they started talking wow and then she's coming over to visit at our house she was there all the time uh-huh. and the house next door to me became for sale right 
and they end up buying it. Wow, that's amazing. His daughter and my daughter uh-huh. were like born together. Wow. Went to nursery school together, went to kindergarten together, went to school together, lived next door to each other, grew up together. How crazy is that? That is amazing. There's a drummer uh-huh. at, at Studio 4 that played on a lot of these records, and we call him Andy Funky Drummer Kravitz. Uh-huh. He's one of the most amazing, most talented drummers I ever met. Right. Right? Him and I did not get along. Mm-hmm. Right? We did not get along. But I didn't hold that against his playing, though. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it didn't make me appreciate him any less as a drummer. People looking from the outside, right? I'm a white guy who had a hip-hop label, right? I actually had an easier time working with African-American kids Mm -hmm. who had all the more reason, you know, the the, the, more ready-made reasons to to act out in the world in the way – than, than a lot of white kids. And the white kids, the majority of the time, I couldn't stand working with them. Mm. Couldn't stand it. Um, I found I found like a lot of rock artists that I worked with over the years, I found a lot of them to be really like unappreciative. Mm. You know? And, uh, you know, there was a whole thing in like the 80s and the 90s where, well, more so like in the 90s, uh, you know, rock bands were about limousines and shooting uh, videos on exotic islands with beautiful girls and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in the 90s, it became about beat-up Converse sneakers and thrift store sweaters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I say it in the book, anything that smelled of, like, the machinations of a, of a, of a major label mm-hmm. when money and everything was totally taboo. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And these guys were very vocal about stuff. And even I said in the book, and even grubby little roughhouse was a little too shiny for these guys. These mm. alternative rock acts. Right. Mm. But you know what I noticed was that when it came to money, mm-hmm. when it came to advances, right. their socialist values just went out. <laughs> with, yeah. But it's like something you know, sometimes like you get an artist who's just phenomenally talented. But they happen to be a douchebag. Right. Just goes with the territory. You know, it is what it is. What are you going to do? Indeed. You've had clearly plenty of amazing success. Uh, The artists that have uh, many of the artists that have come out of Rough House Records are in the history books. You know, in 100 years, people will be reading and learning and listening to to a lot of their music. So I would love to learn, if you don't mind, maybe giving me a little bit of insight into some of the elements outside of talent. That's a given. Some of the elements that have to converge to create that success. Cause it's right. not clearly, it's not about just making a good record. It's I'll, about I'll a lot of other things. It's the simplest rule of thumb ever. Mm-hmm. Simple rule of thumb. If you, if you want the shortest way to get from point A to point B, right. Uh-huh. Stay away from producer driven projects. Interesting. I can't stand producer-driven projects. You want to know why? Why is that? Because what's the artist then? Mm-hmm. Right? You can have somebody who's a great singer, mm-hmm. right? But if they don't write, and if what they're doing isn't what they know is being uh, in keeping with cultural relevance to their audience and everything, mm-hmm. right? Because that's really what an artist is. 
right? Mm-hmm. If you really go back to it, like painting on cave walls and everything like that, an artist is an artist is somebody who is chronicling the times, mm-hmm. right? Even even in they in they can then they can present it to you through the most abstract, you know, presentation. But I, you know, I just I, I'll say this that I uh, I just don't I can't get into like. Artists where you have to go out and find all these people to make the record. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It just doesn't make sense to me. And I, I'll tell you this. We were never successful at it. Never. Mm. Right? Now, what's the downside? Downside that self-contained artists don't grow in trees. Right. right? As a matter of fact, you don't even know if it's self-contained until you put some time into it. Right. So, so – what I would say is that, you know, if I were to do, if I, you know, I, I'm all about self-contained mm-hmm. and what, you know, like Cypress Hill, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Fuji's right. Jermaine Depuy of crisscross. It's like, if you look at every one of the situations, there's somebody within the, within the, in the micro, the immediate microcosm of the group mm-hmm. that knows the, the music. And they know the beats. They know, like, they know what it's all supposed to come out like, right? Mm-hmm. Find one of those, and that's you know that's that's that that's it for me, right? You know? But it's that it's that finding it though is the hard part, right? Right. And how would you say that the ecosystem of working within? A major label structure, obviously, Columbia Records. How, how would you say that, that that changed what you were doing before you came on board? In other words, obviously, I would imagine, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, that having the finances you know, for marketing would be a big deal and obviously having all of the resources distribution in place. Uh, but were there any other things that changed for you and the way that you ran the label yeah. after locking right. in that deal? Yeah, right away. It was uh-huh. it was so bizarre. So so prior to the deal of Columbia, mm-hmm. right? I had a marketing promotion company. Mm-hmm. See, all these labels that wanted to sign School ED that couldn't do it, mm-hmm. they would sign their hip hop and they'd bring it to me. Right? right. I would I would uh, Joe would mix it and I would market print. Mm-hmm. At one point, Joey and I could look at the hot rap singles chart and add the top fifty records in there. Mm-hmm. At least 15 of them were either marketing promoted by me or mixed by him. Right? Right. So so I had this company and I have like a database. I've got, you know, probably, you know, you figure each each major there's like what, 12 major cities that have like 10 to 15 like stores in them, you know, Mm -hmm. independent record stores that Mm -hmm. have, you know, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Right. I had all them. The secondary markets, I had the mixed shows, right? Mm-hmm. And then I had like select barbershops, pool halls, all this stuff, right? So mm-hmm. I had this like tremendous retail, radio, and club list, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I would take records and I'd send them to these people and I had street teams. I was hiring kids in different markets because the thing – because, you know, school eating can play it on the radio. Right. So we hired these kids in every market to, to take our records around to these places, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so when we got the Columbia, mm-hmm. I'll never forget that we we did our thing. Mm-hmm. And it it was told to me 
that the head of the urban music department went to Don Einer, the president of the record label, and said, Rough House is calling all the retailers and trying to get them to jack up their orders to spike the numbers. Mm. And it was mm-hmm. like, what? No, we're doing what we do. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't it at all, that we were just calling retail to make sure they had the record in. Right. And so, but um, it was, you know, I, I, I got to tell you this, Columbia was really good. Mm-hmm. They were... In terms of like getting stuff and marketing and promotion and all that, mm-hmm. I didn't really have any complaints about them at all. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, but it was like they, you know, as a major distribution power, it was very hard to get yourself established, though, in, in, is like, as like a, you know, because nobody, you know, there was just something about it in, say, 1987 to mm-hmm. have a hip hop record on Columbia Records. It was mm-hmm. just, Something didn't seem right. You know what I mean? Right. It just, you know, didn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. You know, hip hop was the purview of the independent labels for the for the longest time. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the majors basically, they colonized the hip hop industry, mm-hmm. colonized it. Mm-hmm. And you know what? And then the thing is, Joey and I, we were we were agents of that colonization. Right. You know, we were funded by a major to mm. sell records on behalf of a major, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Interesting. With the Fugees, you know, I remember I was doing radio at the time, and I remember getting uh, blunted on reality and really digging it. I remember they were working, what was it, the vocab remix and yeah. some of the other yep. records from yep. it, and really digging it. However, from my perspective, it seemed that, you know, the Fugees really at that time weren't embraced by the broader mainstream. And oh, I'm, no. And, and, and I'm no. curious, from your perspective as, you know, clearly someone that is running a business that has to see a return on your investment, what was it about the group that had you stick with them? And then obviously, you know, the rest show. is history with the score. It was a live show. Ah. That, that, here's the important thing. You know how, you know, we talk about self-contained and everything right. like that. Right. When Joey and I went into Sonnenberg, David Sonnenberg's office on the Upper East Side. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, look, you know the story, right? You know, no. Rose, uh-huh. who was head of my retail promotion, met uh-huh. Hassan Sharif at the um, the movie uh, Zebrahead Party. Right, 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 right. Hassan was a Zebrahead, right? right? Right, And she had that cassette, and she bugged the shit out of me for mm-hmm. months to listen mm-hmm. to it. The rap translators. I was like, I couldn't mm-hmm. even get it to the name, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but when Joey and I went in, and this is the whole thing because I talk about in the book, I have no recollection of Miss Hill mm-hmm. at that mm-hmm. audition at all. Mm-hmm. And apparently there were two girls in the group at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there was apparently really four Fujis and then the rest of their, their, hang, their entourage, right? Mm-hmm. But what it was was that Clef who I originally thought was Jamaican. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned he was Haitian right away when we went up there. Was playing an acoustic guitar over a beatbox. Mm. I'd never seen that. Never. I had Schooly D. You know, Schooly, we had we had uh, we had a, a reggae group touring with him called Scram, and we went to Europe. And you know, it was an acoustic guitar played by. Somebody of West Indies, a Caribbean, you know, mm-hmm. descent, right? Mm-hmm. 
and singing and rapping mm-hmm. over acoustic guitar over a beatbox. And this was at the point where I was really, really hating hip hop, man. Mm-hmm. I was just sick of, you know, it was the same thing. MC Mashed Potato and DJ Gravy Boat and mm-hmm. the and their dancers. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. You go to a gig and it's the DJ and the one or two guys on the microphone, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they're doing their shit and it's just like there's just nothing going on, mm-hmm. you know? And they started adding dancers to it to make it into something. Mm-hmm. It just – it did nothing for me. You know, Cypress Hill had this amazing show, mm-hmm. you know? Um and crisscross had, you know, and we had, you know, we had a lot of other hip hop too. Of you course. Know? You know, people don't talk about Cool Keith and Jamalski and the Goats. Mm-hmm. And found out mm-hmm. that I think Guinness Book of World Records said that <laughs> we, we till this till this day, we put out more hip hop music worldwide than any other record company. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. But you know, that's it's it, but it's skewered though. You know why? It's because mm-hmm. of the Fuji. Right. Like, Got it. Right. Uh, there was a period where the three biggest hip hop touring acts in the world uh-huh. were the Fugees, right. Cypress Hill, and the Roots. Wow. The Fugees, two years after the release uh-huh. of Unit on Reality, uh-huh. were still selling six to eight hundred copies a week. Sound scan. Do you know how? Do you know, like, I've never ever seen that again. Wow, that's interesting. But are you saying that Blunted on Reality was selling that amount of units two years after its release? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. But in aggregate, it hadn't sold a lot, right? No, but right. think about that, though. It's been out for two years. Right. They toured relentlessly. Mm, got it, got right? it. So now, look at it from my point, right? right? So you're selling six, 800 copies a week uh-huh. over two years since the release of the record. Right. They're, they've toured Europe like three times, the uh-huh. United States like four times. Are you going to drop this group? Right. Which? Right. No. <laughs> it's like you don't know what this out this next record is going to be like. Right. You like you know. And not only that, like the whole time they're on the road. Mm-hmm. You know, I bought Clef this. Um, I got him in a, an Anvil road case, like mm-hmm. uh, a big road case that stood on its side with some mm-hmm. wheels, mm-hmm. and in the inside of it, I put an ADAT system. Mm-hmm. So he multi-track and mm-hmm. I put some, uh, you know, like I put a whole like mini recording studio right? that he could take on the road and have in the hotel room to record. Nice. Right. And uh, so, yeah, they were, you know, they're constantly creating constantly. And, you know, because mm-hmm. he worked with his cousin, Jerry DePlessis, who mm-hmm. who is an unsung hero of the Fugees, mm. you know, uh, Jerry DePlessis made a real contribution, and so did Proz, for that matter. Right. Proz put the group together. Right. Proz did it. You know, Proz is the one who went and had a meeting of uh, Lauren Miss Hill's parents, and you know, so so there's a there there's something to be said for that. Uh, so so uh, they did a show in London. That didn't go over so well because they had technical issues. Uh-huh. And Luke Verger, who later on became head of Roughhouse Europe, but he, this time he's a uh, he's a marketing coordinator for Sony uh, International, working out of the London office on Marlborough Street. Uh, he called me 
that morning, the next morning, and he said, Chris, I rode with the, with the, with the Sony people in the car last night, and they're talking about dropping the Fujis. Wow. You must lose something. And I was just like, no, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. And, uh, yeah, we didn't let it happen. Right, um, right. So that that was kind of what I was also wondering about was the was there pressure from the Columbia or I guess have I, autonomy this, to do whatever you you needed I, to do. I, I remember this. I sent a uh, a fax. Mm-hmm. But what happens is that there's ticklers right in the computer system, mm-hmm. right? So for business affairs, they know that. There's an option coming, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the tickler notifies, you know, I guess the, the, it pops up on the computer. Okay, uh, Fuji's option approaching, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they call a meeting, you know, or they bring it up at the next meeting, right? right. Uh, God, I never saw a company had so many meetings. <laughs> oh, my God. It was just like, just really like a real meeting culture. So, um, so... They saw the show, and then I remember I sent a fax up to Donnie, and I'm sure he's wondering how I knew. Mm-hmm. And I said, Donnie, I said, we need to be patient. They're going to win Grammys, right? right. That's my oh. words. And uh, Donnie faxes me back in like very like belligerent, you know, pencil or pen. I'm the one who's being patient by that, right? Mm. And then uh, I think with David Kahn at one point said, you know, well, we want to we want to talk about shaking out the roster and everything. Hmm. And I, I just I, I wouldn't let it happen, you know, um, and uh, for good reason, you know. And, and that obviously is is artist development, which we don't have too much yeah. of these days, it seems. Yeah, well, we're not going to. Right. Uh, you know, Israel, we did it to ourselves mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. as an industry. Okay. The internet was going to happen regardless, right? right. Mm-hmm. We knew that. But we really made it easy. And we pushed these kids into the arms of Napster. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we did it. Mm-hmm. And the way we did it was that we, as an, as an industry, put out substandard albums. Mm-hmm. Under the under the mistaken belief mm-hmm. that people were going to sit still for it and buy these uh, uh, extended these long play configurations mm-hmm. that only had one or two songs on them. That's right. And then when uh, when 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 Apple when Apple happened and kids would go they, okay well I know this song let me go on iTunes and get it mm-hmm. oh shit it's telling me I got to buy the whole album mm-hmm. right we did that right because because. We could not the is an A and R culture, right? Mm-hmm. We definitely became a slap one or two songs on there and just fill the rest and get it out there. Right. It was about shipping numbers. Mm-hmm. That's right. right. Filling and shipping numbers, we did it. So in terms of artist development, how? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so transient. Kids now, they have the attention span of fleas. I, th- I think most active music consumers, active fans, like active record buyers, active ticket buyers, mm-hmm. I believe that it's just much easier for them to just look at what's there. You right. know what I mean? Right. 
Kind of going back to the uh, to to the development, and and also in many ways, I would imagine. And again, feel feel free to let me know if I'm wrong. I think in some cases it seems that even when the infrastructure is there, even when the resources are there, it, it almost seems as though there has to be like all the stars have to be aligned in some cases for certain groups to really you know, reach their true potential. Uh, have you found that in, in in your experience that there have been groups that you really, really believed in and it just, it just didn't happen, but it wasn't necessarily something that was done wrong. It just maybe wasn't happenstance didn't happen or it wasn't the right time or yeah. the stars weren't aligned. Yeah. Now it's look, there are people, right? Like David Kahn, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, you know, he produced the, 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 like some of the Paul McCartney records and, but he's won Grammys. He's like, you know, he's a, and he's a real musician, a real music guy. Mm-hmm. He, if you went into what he was head of A&R at Columbia, you wouldn't find a copy of Billboard in his office because mm. he didn't give a shit. Mm-hmm. He didn't care about the charts. All he cared about was that in his mind, he said, if it's good, they will find it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I'll say that the cream rises to the top. I'll give you – I'm not trying to plug a song here. Mm-hmm. Okay. But uh, Kevin, Kevin Glickman, who's my, my in-house attorney, he uh, he put out – he puts out a lot of records, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he put out a record called Quay Rico by um, Prince TK and Zuezon, right? Mm-hmm. It's his uh, Dominican Republic – uh, DR rap group, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He put that record out in September. Mm. Okay. Last month, it started getting hundreds of thousands of streams. Right. But it's been out since September. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, let's look at this. So if you go back and look at the genesis of how it happened, mm-hmm. it started in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Why? You know, I I wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. It just it started in Seattle. Wow. And then it just grew. I always believed in events. Let me give you an idea of, a, of an event. Mm-hmm. An event would be John Leyland from Spin Magazine coming to West Philly to interview Schooley. Mm. Up till then, we had no radio airplay. Mm-hmm. And we were going based on the true strength of the song, pound for pound. We were just right. these unique, wonderful records, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But without radio airplay, you can only go so far and do so much. Exactly. And what happened was when he was in Spin Magazine, it was just a half-page article for a picture of him in the Parkside crew. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Suddenly, London calling, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, Rhythm King Records, part of Mute, right? Mm -hmm. Advances us money to make an album, to finish out the album. Suddenly now distributors are like, and more record pools and DJ, like all this stuff happened. So by the the time that we were over 300,000 records in the U.S. and probably another, you know, who knows, 200,000 in Europe and everything, Mm -hmm. right? All this had been done. With no radio airplay whatsoever, right? right. So, what was the the defining event was Spin Magazine, right? Right. Crisscross. 
it's arguable that the song would have happened on its own. But I will also argue that Rosie Perez, mm. the actress, mm-hmm. was uh, also helping out the Wayans mm-hmm. in Living Color right. by acting as a talent coordinator. Mm-hmm. She, as a favor to somebody at Columbia Records, put Crisscross on in Living Color before the record was released to radio and the video released to MTV. Right. That performance, I think, because I, I talked about it in the book, it was on a Friday night. It was a Friday or Saturday night, I forget. But the next day, I was at the Overbrook Diner. Mm-hmm. I was really hungover. And my wife was giving me a lot of shit mm-hmm. about my partying and hanging out and all that stuff and just really railing, you know? Mm -hmm. And I finally had to tell her to be quiet because there was this upper middle-aged white couple sitting catty corner to us. And the guy was going on and on about seeing crisscross on him. (laughs) He just wouldn't shut up about it. Wow. And I, Knew right then and there. Mm-hmm. I knew because I'm looking at the guy. This is a guy that would never talk about crisscross. Right, right. If you held a gun to his head. Right. And he was like talking about, you know, everything about them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's so I don't know. That could be a defining event. I don't know. Right. right. But, here, but here's a real defining event. Cypress Hill. We uh, we do a single and. um how I could kill a man. But, um, no, we did pigs. Oh, okay, okay. And then we did um, a funky feel one mm-hmm. and hand on the pump, right? Yeah, right, right. Record still sitting mm. in thirty six thousand units, right? We mm-hmm. shipped thirty six thousand. Right. Six six months later, we're still at thirty six thousand units. The record's not selling. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, we know how good this record is. Right. The reason that. And it's not just our own, our own, like our own, our own self-appointed God's gift to hip hop acumen. Mm-hmm. We had DJs calling us, mm-hmm. record pulls, all wanting it. Yeah. So we know there's something going on. So why is there no? Where's the connection? Like what? Where the synapses aren't firing, right? Mm-hmm. So the B side of Funky Feel One. Or was it hand? I forget. The B side, how I could just kill a man, mm-hmm. ended up in Juice. the soundtrack for Juice, mm-hmm. and it's in the scene where Omar mm-hmm. Epps' character is being chased by yep. two Tupac Shakir's chap. Uh, I, I can still close my eyes and remember that scene because of the music. That happened, and a record that sat dead in the water. Wow! For all those months. We are suddenly selling 50,000 copies a week. Wow. Then next thing you know, Cypress Hill is like the biggest thing on the planet. So here we are all these years later. I mean, it's well over, what is it, almost two plus, two and a half, three, almost three decades. Yeah. And Cypress Hill is still <laughs> obviously uh, uh, touring and, and be real as, you know, as I, big as ever. What, what do you attribute I that to? I just sent him an email the other mm-hmm. day mm-hmm. In, in my car. Mm-hmm. 
I can't stop listening to Elephants on Acid. <laughs> I can't stop listening to it. Uh-huh. And I hear all these people like talking. And it's like, and it's like, it's like, shut the fuck up because you don't know. <laughs> then you're not. Then you don't know Cyprus. Right, right. If you knew Cyprus, if you were like, if you were there for those first records, uh-huh. right. You would be like thinking this is the greatest hip, the hippest trip since buttered toast. How great uh-huh. this record is, you know, everything about it, man. Yeah, it, it's all the elements uh-huh. of these original recordings that really define them and 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 really establish them as being so unique and so cool and so fun and hooky and funky and everything. Right. I get all of it in this album. Uh huh. And, and here's the thing: I like Rise Up. Uh huh. I like the last one. Yeah. I thought Rise Up was like was really like a cut above some uh-huh. of the other records. Uh-huh. But man, I'm telling you, Elephants on Acid, I just it is just like a sonic treat for the ears. Uh-huh. You know? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's amazing. So they really are a legacy. Yeah. You know? On another note, or at least a self-destructive note, you know, you have the story of C E B and obviously Steady B and and the rest of the group, how did you feel when, when all that went down? And for those that don't know, obviously, uh, unfortunately responsible yeah, for it, one it, of the first, first female yeah. police officers in the line of duty, mm-hmm. robbing bank. Mm-hmm. Well, not bright guys to start with. Mm-hmm. And I don't like, I, you know, I'm not trying to kick a man when he's down, but mm-hmm. come on, when is robbing a bank ever a good idea? Unless mm-hmm. you happen to be like one of those professional bank robber types, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which they clearly weren't, right. you know? These are kids. Mm-hmm. How could they possibly thought that they could do this? You know right, what I mean? Right. But, you know, they made a good record, you know, mm-hmm. and we, uh, you know, I think we had, we had a number. See, it's funny in the book. I said we had a number seven single. And then I, later on, I found out, I think we had a number one single with, wow. Get the, you know, um, and, you know, the, the management wasn't that great. I remember we went somewhere with some of, some of our other artists. We were in Chicago, and uh, we're all getting ready to get on the thing to go to the airport. Mm-hmm. And the managers are – I go up to their room, and they're sitting there in their underwear eating breakfast. Mm. And they said, oh, yeah, we're going to call the label and tell them to put us on the next plane. Mm. I said, really? <laughs> Paying for that? Do you have money to change your ticket over? Mm-hmm. You got to have good management. And what's even more confounding, and I guess maybe not so much, is that Steady B had this, uh, I would say, significant success throughout the 80s on a pretty significant label. Yeah, yeah. pop art. Yeah. And, and yeah. wasn't he a drive? He was on drive, right? Yeah, through pop art. Uh, another artist, I mean, you mentioned earlier uh, some of the artists that aren't typically brought up, and, and one that I, I didn't hear you mention, Tim Dog, uh, Penicillin on Wax. Were you were you yeah. surprised by the success? I mean, that was a huge record, right? Well, no, the album wasn't. Right. The, no. the single. But I mean, the single. Now I think maybe what we sell, like 40,000 copies, right? Mm, 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 but, mm. but that's not successful. Right, of course. The, the advance and the fact that we had a number one single. Right, of course, yeah. Right. And and also, also, Fuck Compton mm-hmm. was the first ever music video sold as a single music video. Like you could buy the VHS music video. Oh, wow. Video. I didn't know we that. didn't have any radio airplay. We sold over 100,000 of those music videos. Wow. And that was sold just like a, it was just a VHS with one music yep. video on it? Yep. Wow. 
and get and guess and, and, and guess how much it costs to make. <laughs> how much? James Brummel, the video director, three thousand bucks. Wow. You ever, you ever seen that video? I'm sure I have. I don't remember it now, thing. but I'm there's sure like I have. A, there's like a fake NWA uh-huh, and like uh-huh. no. But you know, it's funny on the on the on Clef's podcast. One of his uh, co-hosts has said, you know. But the thing is, funny, silly, whatever. But the one thing that you got to give that record, uh-huh. it's just a man hollering at you over two yeah, yeah, sides yeah. of the record. Yeah, and and I should say the late Tim Dog because obviously he's no longer with us. Right. Yeah, I, you know, in the book, um, I, um, you know, I did in in memoriam, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing, like, all the people that have passed away. Mm-hmm. It's like I have 15 people, you know? Not all people from rough, like, just in right. my life, you know? Right, right. And Chris Kelly, I mean, obviously, massive success with, with Chris Cross. Do you feel that it, it, in some ways that, uh, I don't know, I guess the plague of child stars was, was kind Absolutely. of... Yeah. Absolutely. There's mm-hmm. no way that they were going to be able to... to yeah. That's why I'm going to tell you this. And I say this of all due respect to uh, them and, and 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 Chris and Chris Kelly's family and everything. Mm-hmm. But the, the the simple reality is that there's just no way you're going to translate that from a children's artist mm-hmm. to anything in hip hop. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Now right. the Jonas Brothers, right? Mm-hmm. They're singers, right? Now you know about the Jonas Brothers, right? You, you know their hit songs and everything mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, you know they're on two other labels prior to their to their success. Mm, no, I didn't know as, that. As a like a little teeny bopper act. Mm, mm. Yeah. So, but when you when you bring the singing element into it, you mm-hmm. you can you can you can. There's a lot you can do. But as a rap act named right. Crisscross, right. what what kid? Mm-hmm. Right. Think about this. It's tough. What kid in the '90s is going to buy that record mm-hmm. later mm-hmm. on? Mm-hmm. Right. True. And that's why, like, when Joey, when Joe and I split up and he started Judgment, I was shocked that he signed them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a tough thing to transition, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's it's a tough one, you know, mm-hmm. but they had they had an amazing run. Yeah, um, big time, man. You know that there was a time where, uh, you know, Jump mm-hmm. knocked Boys to Men. It's the fastest selling rap album mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in history of rap, and the most amount of weeks at number one for a song, right? Wow. But here's the crazy thing: I think it was like 14 weeks at number one. Mm-hmm. It knocked Boys to Men "End of the Road" off wow. at number one. That's right? something else. But here's another amazing trivia fact: mm-hmm. both songs were recorded at our studio. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, we we did all the Boys to Men stuff. Interesting. Can you talk to me a little bit about the hip hop enigma known as Cool Keith? Oh my God! <laughs> ultra, ultra, ultra! You know they, they used to say their names so so much, so you wouldn't forget who they were. Uh-huh. Here's here's the thing about Cool Keith, man. Uh-huh. Think about this, right? It's kind of like with this new Schooly album, uh-huh. you know. Uh-huh. That it's amazing that Schooly did those 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 records back then, and mm-hmm. he didn't record now. Yeah. So, all right. So Keith always was like kind of a quirky artist, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but to me, the Doctor Octagon album, sure. To me, I think is one of the greatest. It's it's my one. It's all my Desert Island top ten. Oh yeah, easily. It's one of the most inventive uh, hip hop records. It's like 
you know, it's the it's the Citizen Kane of <laughs> commentary of mixing science fiction and porn uh. together. You know, it's like it's it's I you'll never hear another album like no, that. Not at Think all. about it. No. Think about how unique that was mm-hmm. and how and, and you know, I've known Dan Nakamura prior to that, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, Automator, those beats, you know, mm-hmm. it's almost like it's funny. The beats sound like a hybrid of Cypress and Schooley. Yeah. You know? That kind of dusted, like um mm-hmm. yeah. It's so cool. And 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 the way he Oh my God! In the lyrics, you know, mm-hmm. it not and, and I reappear to you visual, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. my my uh, MX Seven is not you. How could you t- how can you say I'm not from outer space? My MX Seven is not yet invented, you know. It's like a, how, how can you tell me I'm not from outer space? This is awesome, awesome, awesome. So we wanted to sign that record, right? It was the only time. And there's two records that Columbia Records would not let me do. Mm. They would not let me do Dr. Octagon, Mm -hmm. and they would not let me do a Jim Carrey record when he was on In Living Color. Wow. A friend of mine named Phil Roy, Mm -hmm. songwriter, was good friends with uh, Jim Carrey. Mm -hmm. And they all used to hang out together, Uh, Phil, Jim, and um, and, uh, – uh, Nicholas Cage. Wow. I loved In Living Color. Mm-hmm. And I thought Jim Carrey was fucking hysterical. And I, I knew the challenge was going to be that he's more of a visual, visual yeah. medium. But he had some really – he had this thing about Noah on the ark mm-hmm. and God talking to Noah. It's like Noah. <laughs> it's like you know, the, the sheep and everything. <laughs> but anyhow, um, so – I wanted to to do this Jim Carrey record, and uh, there's a guy there named Jay Landers, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. says, "You know, Chris, we did this uh, Eddie Murphy record, and blah 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 blah, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They didn't let me do it. And there's a guy named um, Jimmy Miller, Dennis Miller's brother, mm-hmm. is Jim Carrey's manager, mm-hmm. and so it was going to be this deal." And he was telling me, yeah, we're going to be doing this uh, movie called Pet Detective. Mm-hmm. And they are doing this thing called The Mask, right? Mm-hmm. So they didn't let me do a Jim Carrey record. And then a um, couple now, now cut to Pet Detective comes out. So now five months later, Jim Carrey is like the highest paid actor in Hollywood, right? Wow. And I'm standing there in the hallway up at Columbia. And I hear it like they're having a meeting. And they're talking about setting up and putting together the mask, the album. Mm. And I'm like, well, that sh- should have been my record, right? Mm-hmm. So anyhow, they ended up doing it anyhow. But um, Dr. Octagon, mm-hmm. they they argued that they didn't know how to market it. Wow. And I was like, you don't need to know how to market it. It's going to be the same people that buy Cypress Hill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Same thing. It's the same. It's like, you know, that's, that's a, not like when, when we signed Schooley to Jive, mm-hmm. if you notice something about his records, right? You had the PSK, the Yellow album, mm-hmm. the Saturday Night album. Mm-hmm. He signed to Jive is to me is where from a production standpoint, things kind of fell apart. Mm. And here's what they did. 
they told him, you need to establish a constituency of fans at Black Radio. Mm. And, you know, schoolies following, like Cypress Hill, mm-hmm. a lot of white kids. Right. And he was fine just doing what he did. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, they, you know, and I know that now you have an artist who's an African-American hip-hop artist, and you're telling them that you, they need to sound more black. Mm-hmm. How do you sound? How do you do that? I don't know right. how you do that. Right. Right. So, um, yeah. So, um, Cool Keith. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, Cool Keith. So, we did a Black Elvis Lost in Space, right? Yeah. Great record. And, yeah. And um, I just think that uh, Keith, uh, you know, he, he, he to me, mm-hmm. to go to be in, to be in like, the, you know, the, the embryonic era of hip hop with ultra mm-hmm. and then all these years later to do dr octagon mm-hmm. and that's an artist he's a genius yeah there's just no doubt he just did a track with be real yeah wow. yeah mm-hmm. um so one thing that i i was not aware of when i read your book uh and and again maybe, maybe i'm saying it wrong but it seems as though nas was swept from under you uh, or at least the the album was swept from under you uh, to your parent to the to the to Columbia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what happened was uh, MC Search mm-hmm. bought Nas to Columbia. Searchlight. No, Search MC Search. Right? Wasn't wasn't his management company Searchlight? No, that's a film company. Oh, okay. I thought his. You know what? He may have been calling it searchlight. Yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah. what he called it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he he bought it there, and they said they. Well, here's the amazing thing. Uh-huh. I there's a guy that worked for me named Greg McGarra. Uh-huh. He was a manager of an after hours club I hung out at. Uh-huh. Right, and we used to you know do like hang out like. Four, five, sunrise, you know, mm-hmm. and he oh, he constantly played the live at the barbecue, constantly mm-hmm. played, mm-hmm. and he was like, I don't know why you don't go try and find this kid Nas. Wow. See, I thought he was signed to Wild Pitch, right. Nasty Dude, Nas, right? What's that? Nasty Nas. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's. I thought he was, you know. Uh huh. So when Donnie called me up. And said, uh, I want you to, uh, you know, I want to introduce you to Search. Uh, and he has this artist named Nas. Uh-huh. And I was like, really? Wow. Like, sure. Wow. Right? And they bring him down to Philly. And we uh, we we have lunch. Mm-hmm. And um, we do this deal. We sign him to Rough House. Wow. And we did the single. Halftime shot the video for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the source. I gave them five songs and really did the whole thing. And uh, and what happened was that the reason they gave them to us mm-hmm. is because they owed us. So, so we had pipeline revenue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The thing about major, you know, distributors, mm-hmm. you know, they. They can owe you millions and millions of dollars, but mm-hmm. they don't have to pay you till the money's due. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So for them, it's like eh, we don't know about this. Let's do it on Rough House, and if it something happens, great. If not, 
it's roughhouse's dime, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's what it was. They it backfired on him, mm. and Don Einer, uh, Tommy Matola sent Donnie a fax, and he showed me the fax, and the fax was the 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 subject matter. Why is Nas not on Columbia proper, mm. right? And then in big letters underlined with exclamation points. And this is Tommy talking to Donnie. Mm-hmm. He's saying, you fucking asshole. Hmm. Right. And Donnie was like, I'm in a real bind here. Like he was really in a bind, you know, and mm-hmm. I, you know, it's not that we needed the Nas record right then there. We were some, you know, we were good, but it was important to me to, to maintain my relationship with Donnie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, I, I did it for Don Einer and nobody else. Right. Now, Search, right, calls me up and he's beefing about um, the Zebrahead soundtrack, mm-hmm. say I, that I left him twisting in the wind on it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, dude, I didn't leave you twisting and shit because the bottom line is that, that movie failed miserably at the box office, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the and the soundtrack album, okay, was okay, but it wasn't anything to like you know. You know what do you want from me? Mm-hmm. You know you can't blame me for this, right? Right. Right. But he was feeling really salty about that. Mm. The other part of it was that I believe that Columbia felt like they needed a hip hop record. Mm-hmm. You know, Faith Newton said that we don't have shit, and they didn't want to see what happened when Def Jam left. You know. Right. So so that that was the story. But I would see Nas, and every time I saw him, he'd be like, man, I wanted to stay on Rough House. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, he shouted me out in, um, in Surviving the Times, mm-hmm. you know, which was I thought was nice years later. You know? Very nice. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, that that whole story see and, and i would imagine that this probably I, I i would i would venture to say at least a whole other book just on label politics if you don't mind could you share maybe some of the biggest lessons that you learn from navigating in in a world of the heads of you know conglomerates yeah, yeah. here we go mm-hmm. uh we were at a, at a party for crisscross mm-hmm. so like you know multi platinum record mm-hmm. and photographer comes up and it's it's myself Donnie and Tommy mm-hmm. and the crisscross kids are standing in front of us mm-hmm. right? they take they take pictures right mm-hmm. two weeks later Rolling Stone magazine. There's a picture, same picture. Mm-hmm. Where did I go? Mm. I was totally crossed out. Wow. <laughs> it's like, I, I mean, it was like, and I, I remember being really pissed, mm-hmm. you know, because I know Rolling Stone didn't get the photo like that. Right, right. I, like, in other words, Rolling Stone didn't do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, they'd have no reason to. Right. So they made sure that when that photo went out that I was cropped out of the shot. Mm. And so that's what started kind of like a weird thing between me and Tommy, Mm -hmm. because I basically, uh, sent, I think it was a fax or something up there to publicity. And I see, see Tommy's office saying, 
uh, we, you know, we want final approval over any publicity shot that leaves the building. Mm. Right? Okay, so it's that. Okay, so then uh, I forget what time period this happened in, mm-hmm. but I did a uh, interview on CNN's Power Lunch, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, a daily show on CNN Power Lunch, and they have like, you know, captains of industry on the talking. So I was on there talking about hip hop and everything. And um, as soon as the interview's over, I get a um, phone call from a executive at Columbia Records who we renamed, mm-hmm. remained nameless. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, Chris, you know, he goes, you know, man, Tommy really likes you. I said, oh, really? Yeah, I like Tommy. He goes, yeah, man. I guess he goes, but do you know the one thing like, you know, with Tommy – Tommy likes the guys under him to be, you know, laid back. Mm. And then he's saying, and 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 I, it sounds like it's just, he's coming off to me in like a really way that I've never, you know, talked to this guy before. Mm-hmm. And then and then that's when I realized that Tommy was sitting in front of him. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he right. calls me to chastise me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for doing a TV interview. Right, right. Then he started <laughs> saying things like this. Well, you know. What you got to understand, Chris, is that, you know, like Tommy's a star, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and Tommy's really the guy that should be talking to the press and all this shit. And right. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Wow. Right. All right. So cut to Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did this big thing in England. It was really like people were in, it was fans were hysterical over this right Mm -hmm. and i get a phone call Mm -hmm. from tommy's office and it's his assistant uh chris tommy needs you to come to a meeting with danny devito Mm -hmm. and it's just you know blah 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 it's really important i said absolutely when's the date well when's the date it's the day of you know japan Mm mm-hmm She's, it's 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 Miss Hill performing for the Sony executives, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, can't do it. Going to Japan with Miss Hill, right? Mm-hmm. And then she goes, Chris, she said, Tommy kind of like wanted me to tell you it's really, really important that you be at this meeting. I was just told this, right, by the assistant to really arguably one of the most powerful guys mm-hmm. in the music business, right? Right. So what am I going to do? Say fuck off, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so I agreed to it. Mm. And uh, later on that day, I saw Kevin Glickman, who's my in-house attorney. Mm-hmm. And uh, I told him, I said, yeah, I, uh, I'm not going to Japan because Tommy wants to have this meeting with Danny DeVito and it's the same day and blah, blah, blah. Right. Kevin started laughing at me. Mm. And he said, I'll bet you what's going to happen, plane's going to take off, and they're going to cancel the meeting. I said, no, nah, ain't that kind of party. They, we, that won't happen. It was because it was something like it was urgent and everything, right? Mm-hmm. Plane takes off. Next day, Chris Tommy's office on the phone. Mm-hmm. I, I fucking knew it. <laughs> wow. Oh, hi, Chris. 
Well, as it turns out, Danny had to do some reshoots. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and like, and this is an, I can't prove this in a court of law, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? But if I had to speculate, I would say that Tommy did not want me talking to any of the Sony execs over there in Japan. Right. Did he want me doing any press over there? Wow. And, um, it was a very slippery maneuver, and 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 it's funny how now looking back on it after all the shit that happened, that I fell for it. Mm-hmm. You know, but what are you going to do? That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, so, and 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 obviously, I mean, this this goes way back into you know the beginning of the business. I mean, the music industry has always been known as cutthroat and ruthless. Um, how, from your experience, I mean, being in, you know, at, 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 in the epicenter of success and uh, the whirlwind of activity, how, how would you say your era of that, uh, that industry compares to all the storied uh, things that we've read in books like The Hitman? And- I will tell you this, it, um, it was pretty, it was the same. It's mm. actually, if you look at it, the 90s mm-hmm. were the most profitable decade in the mm-hmm. history of the music business, mm-hmm. right? Because think about this. We were selling CDs, mm-hmm. right, for Miss Education Lauren Hill, to, uh, $21.95, right? Mm-hmm. You know how much it costs a major distribution power to make a CD with a, uh, with a, um, with a jewel case and a gatefold four-color separation package? Mm-mm. 85 cents. Mm-hmm. Okay. So take away your uh, distribution cost, your marketing and promote. Let's say another mm-hmm. four or five. Let's say six bucks even. Mm-hmm. Right? Let's say, let's say, let's say seven bucks. Let's round it out. Right. Right. And you sell a million. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. You sell. So that's, think about that. A million, mm-hmm. ten million. That's that's like you're averaging ten million dollars per mm-hmm. per million, right? And we were selling not just millions and millions and millions, but overseas, we were outselling every other hip hop label. Wow. Yeah. So, so it's it's the the money was just. You know, crazy. Now, um, another thing, too, is that, you know, we had renegotiated a couple times. Mm-hmm. And uh, an important thing is uh, is like, you know, international is how you get paid, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you renegotiate and they say, okay, in this territory, we're going to take you from, you know, uh, you know, uh, 11 points to 16 points, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. But – you, it's a big, complicated system, right? Mm-hmm. And that royalty bump never makes it into the accounting program. Mm. And then when you go back and do an audit, you you can find like millions, 10, 12, 15, 20 million dollars, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So if there was anything different about the business, mm-hmm. it was the money. Because right. the 80s, it was the CD. And it was just like the '90s was about CDs, mm-hmm. and it was just a a real pig fest, you know. Right. 
Uh, and I think, again, that's where we, as an industry, mm-hmm. got greedy. Mm-hmm. And we figured we just want to sell that CD, and we weren't really thinking about, uh, con- you know, I mean, Roughhouse was, and mm-hmm. I, you know, mm-hmm. but maybe we, we made a couple records like this where you're just making an inferior record just to sell it to ship a CD. Right, right. So, so I think, like again, the internet, the the internet happening, what it was in, it was inevitable, regardless. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we made it easy for them, right? And and as obviously as an A and R as well, what do you think about where we are now? That essentially it, it appears that it really is just kind of about watching it's who's blowing med- up on so, YouTube. Social, yeah, social media metrics. Right, right. There, there is no, there is no A and R development process anymore. Mm-hmm. I, and I'll tell you this: in two thousand nine, mm-hmm. right? For better part of two thousands, I was working for Sony, mm-hmm. and I would go to the A and R confabs, mm-hmm. and every kid in that room found their artist online. Mm-hmm. Every single one, mm-hmm. you know. So there is no, there is no. Develop the like. How organic can this be that you're finding your 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 artists on a TV? You right, know, right? It's like there's nothing. You know, now the other thing though, the good thing about it is that it's created a level playing field. Mm-hmm. So there are some good things happening though. Mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. and here's what it is. I guess we're going to go on now the fourth year in a row mm. with uh, the worldwide global music revenues going north. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Okay. The other thing is, is that and this is now kind of unfairly skewered because it's there. There, there's no, there's no profit margin from the signed artists. You know, mm-hmm. if signed artists were selling albums or anything, this would be ha- we we wouldn't have this the next uh, we wouldn't have this next uh, analytic. Mm-hmm. But eighteen percent of global music revenues mm-hmm. are independent artists when i say independent artists they're not signed right. they're just putting out their own stuff through you know youtube and shit like that 18 mm-hmm. percent of global music revenues wow now if if all the signed artists were putting out albums then that would that definitely be a different situation mm-hmm. it would probably go back to what it was 20 years ago 0.04 or something you know right right it's been man it's been uh, a world of information and insight and i and i will love to do a part two because i want to dig into what you got going on now and obviously the oh, schooly yeah, records absolutely. yeah the, 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 I, I gotta tell you something uh-huh. um the, the, this this schooly album uh-huh um uh, i uh you know it's weird because I, I never thought i'd hear myself saying this uh-huh. and, you know because schoolies put out some records over the years that you know we're good but this is different so anyhow israel Thank you, sir. Man, I appreciate all your time. Thank you so much.